Well, every generation of Christians has had to fight for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. You see, from the very beginning, the church has been called to contend earnestly for the faith. Not to be contentious about the faith, but to contend earnestly for the faith, to fight for the faith. And the reason for that is because the truth is a treasure of infinite value worth fighting and worth dying for. And it all began with Christ himself who said this in Matthew 7.15. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, hold the line when it comes to sound doctrine. Continued on with the Apostle Paul, who in the book of Galatians steps into the ring against the Jewish legalists. And he tells all those who wish to pervert the gospel that they can go to hell. He said in Galatians 1 verse 9, he says, if anyone preaches a gospel to you besides what you receive from us, let him be condemned. Continued on with Jude who in response to false teachers infiltrating the churches, he said, Beloved, I, while I had all intention of writing to you about our common salvation, I had the urgency laid upon me to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You see? But it didn't stop there. Continued on in the first and second centuries with Clement of Rome, Ignatius and Justin Martyr who gave their lives to protect the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. Ignatius said this while waiting in a dimly lit prison cell, waiting to be devoured by lions. He said, let me be food for the wild beasts through whom then I may reach God. In other words, feed me to the lions. If you wish, it's only going to get me to God anyway. And there was Polycarp in the second century who was arrested as a senior citizen by the Roman government who told him that all he had to do to save his life was to deny Christ and to worship the Roman emperor to which he replied, 86 years I have served Christ and never once did he wrong me. How then shall I blaspheme my king? They bound him to the stake and they burned him alive. A senior citizen. Justin Martyr, 2nd century, went toe-to-toe against antagonistic and violent Jews against whom he defended the deity and resurrection of Christ, and he did so until they killed him for it. Irenaeus, 2nd century, waged war against a heresy called Gnosticism, a heresy that denied the humanity of Christ, that denied the incarnation, and he battled for the deity and the, incarna- and the uh, humanity and deity of Christ until eventually he was cut down by the enemies of the gospel. And of course, we can't forget Athanasius, 4th century in Alexandria, Egypt, who fought a heresy known as Arianism, which denied the deity of Christ, which rejected the Trinity. And in his day, more people rejected the Trinity than believed the Trinity, and yet he was willing to be one man contra mundum against the world, one man willing to defend the deity of Christ against an entire world. And there were others, lots and lots of others throughout the centuries who were beaten and bludgeoned and burned alive for the very truths that you and I just speak about without even flinching. And you see, it's fighting 
for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel that what the Reformation was all about. And by the Reformation, I mean the Protestant Reformation. And by that, I mean the moment in history when the lamp of the gospel of God's grace was relit after centuries of darkness. I mean when the gospel was rediscovered amidst a thousand years of man-made traditions and superstitious beliefs. I mean one of the most triumphant and victorious moments not only in church history but even in human history. That's what I mean by the Reformation. And this morning we're calling Reformation Sunday. This and next week is Reformation Week, I guess which means we are celebrating the Reformation which began 500 and now three years ago today. We are literally having a theological party celebrating the day when the gospel of sovereign grace was rediscovered amidst the theological wreckage of the Catholic Church. I'm jealous for you. I'm anxious for you. Not merely to learn church history and a bunch of dates, but rather to be gripped by your theological heritage left for you by your comrades in the 14th and 15th and 16th centuries who gave their lives to light the torch of the gospel. I'm jealous for you. I'm anxious for you to take up the torch as new reformers in a hostile and dangerous 21st century because I'll have you know the Reformation, it ain't over Not even close, not by a long shot. It's now in your hands to take up the torch of the gospel as a new generation of reformers. To join the long line of men and women who gave everything so that the gospel could reach every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That is what we're talking about this morning. And so no pressure, but now all of that now falls into your hands. So here's where we're going this morning, and I cannot wait. What you're about to hear is a mix of church history, theology, and biography that I really do hope will inflame in you a zeal to be new reformers. This morning is going to be divided up into four parts. Number one, I'm going to define for you the Reformation and unfold the black hole out of which the Reformation exploded. That's part one. Part two, I'm going to briefly preach the biography of the German reformer Martin Luther, who was the man in a very real sense that Christ used to unleash the Reformation. Part three, I'm going to preach the five radical commitments of the reformers called the five solas, which not only define the Reformation, but even Christianity itself. And part four, I'm going to close with two implications. Two implications for you to take up the torch of the gospel as new reformers in the 21st century. And so sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Here we go. Part one. Part one, which I'm calling the Reformation and the black hole out of which it exploded. The Reformation and the black hole out of which it exploded. Because it is as they say. It's always darkest just before the dawn. And it's no different when it comes to the Reformation. Because if the Reformation began more or less on October 31st, 1517, you need to know that the previous thousand years leading up to that moment were some of the most grim centuries in human history. From the 5th to the 15th century in Europe, there's this dismal storm cloud that just sort of hangs over human history. 
But you see what makes those 10 long centuries of the Dark Ages so dark was, was not the Black Death Plague that in two years killed almost half the population of Europe. It was not the brutality of Muslim invaders who swept through Europe, drenching it with blood. It was not the widespread famines and diseases and plagues. It wasn't even the disappearance of technological progress and innovation. No, what made the Dark Ages so tragic, get this now, is that the doctrine of salvation by God's sovereign grace alone was all but forgotten. You see, for 10 long centuries, Europe shivered in the cold shadow of a Roman Catholic theology that taught that although salvation was purchased by Christ, it was earned by your works. And while that may not sound particularly shocking or sinister, at first was what that meant was if you wanted to get saved, you had better earn your forgiveness. If you wanted to appease the wrath of God against you, you had better work for your salvation. You had better buy your redemption. But you see, the problem is the church had wired the process down to such an art that no one knew how good was good enough. And so as a result, people for over a thousand years were slaves to fear. You see, the darkness of the dark ages was the disappearance of the doctrine that salvation was by God's sovereign grace alone and and the bible was hidden and obscured in a latin translation that nobody had access to nobody read except the priest i mean people for centuries didn't know that they were a part of the greatest theological cover-up in history i mean nobody knew the most foundational doctrines about salvation that the church espoused were not only not in the bible they were against the bible listen to john fox a church historian in the 1500s who said this about the Dark Ages. He wrote this just a couple decades after the Reformation. He said, at this time, Christianity was in a sad state. Although everyone knew the name of Christ, few, if any, understood his doctrine. Instead, the Roman church was solely concerned with outward ceremony and human traditions. People spent their lives heaping up one ceremony after another in hopes of salvation, not knowing that it was theirs for the asking. Simple, uneducated people who had no knowledge of Scripture were content to know only what their priests told them, and the priests were content only to tell them what came from Rome, most of which was for the profit of their own orders and not for the glory of Christ. That is devastating. I mean, imagine what this was like. No access to the Bible. No podcasts. No Bible conferences. No pastors actually preaching God's word. And if there were, they were killed by the church. No books, solid books with sound theology. And if there were, they were burned by the church. I'm not exaggerating this. I mean, it was forbidden by the Catholic Church to read the Bible, even in your own language. In 1519, in a town called Coventry, England, seven men were burned alive for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. So do you see what I mean when I call the years leading up to Reformation a black hole? Now, don't get me wrong, there were reformers before there were reformers. People who stood up for the centrality of Scripture. 
and the supremacy of Christ and the sovereignty of grace in salvation like the Waldensians and the Petrobrusians in the 1100s, like John Wycliffe and the Lollards in the 1300s, and my hero in whose pulpit I personally stood, Jan Hus of the Czech Republic in the 1400s, and they killed him. Every single one of them, they killed him. They all paid the ultimate price, giving their lives for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. And so that leads me to define for you what the Reformation is. And without question, the Protestant Reformation is one of the most controversial and I think thrilling eras in the history of the church. I mean, this is a story that needs to be told again and again and again because you have to understand the Reformation, this is our heritage. This, this is our history. This is our spiritual family tree. This is our story. This is our tribe. These are our comrades. And so what is the Reformation? Well, you have to understand this was not only one uh, single act led only by one man. Rather, the Reformation was this history-altering movement that took place over decades that was at its very essence the recovery of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. To put it another way, the Reformation was when the supremacy of God in the salvation of men resurrected the church out of the spiritual graveyard in which it had been buried for centuries. Or to put it in its most crude terms, the the Reformation was when authentic Christianity emerged out of and severed itself from the Roman Catholic Church with its counterfeit gospel of works and merit. That is the Reformation. Steve Lawson, an author, theologian, puts it like this. He says, The church was greatly in need of reform. Spiritual darkness personified the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible was a closed book. Spiritual ignorance ruled the minds of the people. The gospel was perverted. Church tradition trumped divine truth. Personal holiness was abandoned. The rotten stench of man-made traditions covered pope and priest alike. The corruption of ungodliness contaminated both dogma and practice. And yet, and yet, Everything changed on October 31st, 1517, when a German monk named Martin Luther hammered onto the Wittenberg church doors, a document that exposed some of the most tragic corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church, and in that moment, everything changed. Like, not kidding, this literally led to the shifting of entire civilizations. It was one of those proverbial rocks in the pond of history, the ripple effects of which we can still feel even at this moment, down to this very day. So that brings me then to the man, to the moment when it all began. Part two. Part two, an abbreviated biography of Martin Luther, which I'm calling The Monk Who Shook a Kingdom. That's part two, The Monk Who Shook a Kingdom. Because one of the things I love about Martin Luther's life is that his life is proof that even nobodies can change the world, which is what he was and which is what he did. I mean, the impact of Luther's life on history, especially our history as slaves of Christ, is, is simply incalculable. Luther is essentially the pioneer reformer, the first reformer whom God would use to light the torch to bring Western civilization out of the darkness. Now, again, again, it's true, it's true. Luther stood on the shoulders of so many that came before him, men like Wycliffe 
and Hoos and other countless unnamed people. And while they should get credit for building the bomb of the Reformation, it was Martin Luther who finally pulled the pin. Not the son of a king, but the son of a copper miner, Luther was born in 1483 in Eiselben, Germany, to, and with, with seven other siblings in a middle-class blue-collar home. His father was stern and gruff and all but demanded that he go to law school and become a lawyer, which he obediently did. Not a great student. He eventually did graduate with his bachelor's degree at the age of 19, ranking 30th of 57 in his class. In 1505, he went on on to pursue his master's degree in law at the University of Erfurt, and it was that summer after his first year of law school. He's on his way back home for summer vacation, doing whatever it is that law students do for their summer vacation in 16th century Germany, and it was on his way back home for summer vacation when the providential moment happened. A kind of Damascus Road experience for the, like the Apostle Paul. It was July 2nd. He's on his way home from school and he gets caught in a thunderstorm which apparently was so bad that he literally thought he was going to die. In fact, the lightning struck so close to him that it almost killed him, knocking him to the ground and in response, he does the strangest thing. Do you know what he did? In the pouring rain, he calls out to the sky, help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Okay, So in other words, you know how like even people who hate God will call out to God in a moment of panic? That's what he did, only instead of calling out to God, he called out to St. Anne. And and who is St. Anne? Apparently, according to the Roman Catholic Church, she was the patron saint of mine workers, workers in the mine. And Luther's father worked in the mine. And so St. Anne was a sort of household deity idol to whom the family prayed in a crisis. I said, do you realize what he just did? He just made a bargain, a plea bargain, a deal with St. Anne. You get me out of this and you keep me alive and I promise you I will become a monk in the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) I mean, he feared, this man feared for his soul. And since he didn't know how to find security in the gospel as a Roman Catholic, he took the next best thing, which was to find security in the monastery. He comes home and he tells his father that he's quitting law school. His father flips his lid because they wasted all that money on that valuable education. And yet, despite his father's outrage, 15 days later, Luther packed his bags and he kept his vow. July 17, 1505, he walks up to the gates of the Augustinian monastery at Erfurt and asks to be accepted as a monk. At the age of 21, they accept him. And two years later, in 1507, he becomes an official priest in the Roman Catholic Church. And to say the least, Luther was representative of the kind of soul that you could easily find in the walls of the Catholic Church. In other words, as a typical Catholic, he constantly lived in the terrifying dilemma of having zero assurance about the security of salvation because in Catholicism, there ain't no such thing. I mean, you have to essentially earn your own salvation, but you could lose it too, so you really never know how good is good enough, and there's always the sense that God is angry with you, and so you have to appease his anger with these rituals and these confessions and acts of penance, but you're never really quite sure which way the scales are tipped, and so this kind of theology absolutely crushed Martin Luther under an avalanche of fear and despair. He said, in the monastery, I didn't so much think about women or money or possessions. 
but rather my heart trembled and fidgeted as to whether God would bestow his grace on me. For I had strayed from faith and could not but imagine that I had angered God, whom I in turn had to appease by doing good works. If I could believe, and some of you may be in this place, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. do, Do you hear the anguish in this man's soul? Well, in the monastery, he was so overwhelmed with his own wretchedness that he would spend hours in confession, racking his memory for any unconfessed sin. As a sort of self-salvation, he abused his body with ascetic acts to, to somehow try to gain atonement for his own sins. One church historian said Luther pushed his body to the health-cracking rigors of austerity. He sometimes fasted for three days and slept without a blanket in the freezing winter. He was driven by a profound sense of his own sinfulness and God's unutterable majesty. And you have to understand, all this, what this was, this was not some self-righteous attempt to try to feel superior to the other bozos, but he was just trying to think of anything he could that would somehow move God to have mercy on his soul. And yet little did he know that God had already sent someone to be punished even for the most notorious of sinners. And it's true, it's true. Luther did know the name of Christ, but what, Luther, but what Christ had actually accomplished had been tragically buried under centuries and centuries of church tradition. And, and Luther's mentors, they didn't know what to do with this unstable, emotionally fragile young priest, always in despair over his own soul. And so Luther's mentor took a real risk, Johannes von Staupitz came to Luther and he asked him to teach the Bible and theology at the University of Wittenberg. Because that's what priests did in those days. They were the university professors. And previously, Luther had been teaching philosophy to the students at the university. But now, get this, he would be spending full time studying and teaching and lecturing on the Bible. So what? What does that mean? It means we are inching our way ever closer to the Reformation. Just keep in mind here, Luther is not a Christian in the way we understand Christianity. He, he has not yet embraced Jesus Christ. He has not yet embraced the reality that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is a typical Roman Catholic seeking, seeking to obtain his own salvation through the contribution of his own good works, which means like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he was about to discover that everything he had believed about salvation was wrong. Three years later, October 19th, 1512, at age 28, he received his doctorate degree in theology. And he became a full-time professor at the university teaching uh, the Bible and theology steeped, steeped in Catholic doctrine and theology and tradition. But soon and very soon, that was all about to change. Because you see, one of the things I love about how God ordains history is the sense of irony. What I mean is it seems like God loves to surprise us, to catch us off guard with the most seemingly unlikely things to advance his plan. For instance, in the year 1516, note the date, 1516, the very year before the Reformation, a man named Erasmus Desiderius, a Dutch scholar, 
zealous member of the Catholic Church, an eventual persecutor of the Reformation, built and distributed the very bomb that would unleash the Reformation. (laughs) Do you know what he did? He published the first ever printed edition of the Greek New Testament. Now, you could, you could get copies before this, but they were massive and handwritten and really expensive and hard to come by. But now, but now, this Catholic scholar, an eventual hater of Luther and persecutor of the Reformation, built the very thing that would cause the Reformation to come into being. Do you know what that is called? That's called providence. That's called sovereignty. That's called divine irony and suspense. And so get this, Luther, who's teaching the Bible full-time at the university, gets his pause on a Greek New Testament and what begins to happen. The walls begin to crumble. The darkness begins to lift. All the warts and theological deformities that he had been taught his whole life long were now beginning to show in other words as he studied and meditated on the Greek text he began to see that so many things the Catholic Church taught about salvation were not only not in the text they were against the text so needless to say Luther's theological views were shifting in a real hurry Fast forwarding October 31st, 1517. He took a document that he had written which contained 95 theses or propositions or theological statements that disputed the Catholic Church's teaching on how to get your sins forgiven. And and you have to understand, in that day, nailing something to the castle church doors, that's just what you did. It was the ancient equivalent to the bulletin board or the the Facebook news feed or, or, or an ancient Twitter post. And and this ancient post on Twitter went viral, so viral, in fact, that it would eventually rip apart the very fabric of Western civilization. Now, because I have minutes here and not hours, I need to skip to the very moment of Luther's conversion. Because you have to understand, Luther is, is, believe it or not, is still not converted. He, he, he is still wrestling with what it, with what it means to, to be saved. He, he has not yet embraced the reality of sovereign grace alone as the source of his salvation. He has not yet understood the, the earth-shattering reality that full pardon for his sins is just there for the taking. Available, free of charge, purchased and paid for in full by the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ, accessed by faith. He has not yet understood that, but he is about to. The steam of controversy had been building in Europe because of the 95 theses. And meanwhile, again, he's still studying, lecturing in the university. Uh, And again, you have to understand, this is no ivory tower theologian, you know, in his cushy air-conditioned office doing theological horseplay. You have to understand, this man is fighting for his very soul. This man is doing bleary-eyed, battle-wearied study for in the trenches of this gut-wrenching struggle. Because, because here's the thing, if what the Catholic Church taught was true about salvation, he had zero assurance that he would ever make it to heaven and see God. And yet it was in April of 1518 that he settled it once and for all. He's preparing to lecture on the book of Romans. And here he is in his cold study, studying Romans chapter one, and there is this one verse in particular, namely chapter one, verse 17. You don't have to turn there, just listen. 
And this was the verse that tortured him. It says, for in it, that is the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the verse. That's the verse that tormented him when it was the decisive moment in his salvation. So I want you to listen to Luther's own account of his conversion, which happened through the beautiful agony and study and meditation on Scripture. And I want you to listen for every single time Paul talked about wrestling with God's Word. He said, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans. But up until then, it was a single phrase that had stood in my way, namely the phrase, the righteousness of God. For I hated the righteousness of God, which according to all the customs of the teachers, I had been taught to understand that it is the righteousness of God with which he punishes sinners. And though I lived as a monk beyond reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that his wrath had been appeased by my good works. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I, 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 was, I raged. I was angry at God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul in that place, most ardently desiring to know what it is that Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating, meditating, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives as a gift of God, namely by faith. Here is what the text means. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Pause. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying he just discovered that acceptance with God is not something that you obtain by the accomplishment of your good works that outweigh the bad, as if that were even possible. But rather, our acceptance with God is given to us as a gift when we believe the gospel. In other words, when we trust in Christ, God transfers, as it were, to our bankrupt spiritual bank account the very righteousness of Christ by which God accepts us. That sinners are not saved by their achievements, but by the achievements of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, which the sinner acquires by faith alone. And don't you see, all faith is is the broken-hearted recognition that you have nothing to contribute to your own salvation except the sins that need to be forgiven. That is what Luther discovered. And when he did, he wrote this. He said, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise through open gates, which is what happened. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. 
And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great with the hate as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Praise God. So, did you see this? The entire Reformation was launched by a blood and guts fight to the death study of Holy Scripture. I mean, you wonder, you wonder why we push meditating and studying the Bible so much here. You wonder why it is that we offer a class on on how to study the Bible. It's it's because it's not some sort of self-righteous box-checking thing or because it makes God like you more, but because it's the gateway to paradise. We don't spend time in God's word to make God happy with us. We spend time in God's word to be happy in God above all things. The word of God is the power not only to change your life, but to change the world through your lives. So if there's anything that I want you to get from Martin Luther and the entire Reformation, it's the sufficiency and the supremacy and the centrality of the word of God. But the fuse had already been lit by Luther and the heat was beginning to be too much for Pope Leo to ignore. And so in 1520, Pope Leo sent a court order, a summons, a subpoena, a warrant, if you will, to Luther to appear in court that next year and give an account for his crimes of heresy. This is a big deal. I mean, Luther is a long-standing member in the Catholic Church. He knew exactly what they did to heretics. I mean, this thing could go either way here. He had no guarantee that he would even make it to his trial, let alone that there would even be a trial, instead only an execution. He said this to his students while lecturing just before he left. I mean, imagine your seminary professor, Bible school teacher saying this to you. He says, even if the emperor should call me to Worms, that's the city in which the trial was held, even if he calls me to Worms to kill me or to declare me an enemy of the empire, which he did, I shall offer to come. With Christ helping me, I shall not run away, nor shall I abandon God's word in this struggle. So Luther showed up to his trial. April 16, 1521, and on the next day, he shows up to the courtroom. On the table in front of him were a collection of his writings. In front of him were seated Pope, uh, uh, bishops and cardinals and leaders and even the emperor himself in a kind of inquisition, which is exactly what this was. And you have to understand, they were not interested in hearing his explanation. That They understood exactly what he meant. Rather, he was expected to come and apologize, to beg for forgiveness for contradicting the teachings of the church. But the moment he opened his mouth, it was not to be. He said, I will tell you straight what I think, (laughs) as if he did anything other than that. If you read Luther, you you could tell this man was not fearful of what people thought about him. I'll tell you straight what I think. I am a Christian theologian, and I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I believe freely And I will be the authority, I will be a a slave to the authority of no one, whether council or university or pope. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything 
since it is neither safe nor right for me to go against my own conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Those are dramatic words. But it's not just drama that Luther was going for. Rather, what was at stake for him, what hangs in the balance for us is eternal souls hearing the life-giving, soul-saving gospel message of Jesus Christ untainted by human contamination. And when he said that the battle lines were drawn and the Reformation had begun and it continues even to this day, we are, like it or not, the new reformers. We're almost home. It brings me to part three. Part three, which I'm calling the radical commitments of the reformers. The radical commitments of the reformers, which are the five solas. The five solas. And I'll explain what those mean. But you have to understand that what what defined the reformers, what defined the Reformation was, was not so much the things they were against, but the things that they were for. You see, what gripped the souls of men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Tyndale and Knox was not so much the heresy that they hated, but the truth that they treasured. And over time, it became really clear that there were five things, at least five things that defined the entire Reformation. Maybe a better way to put it is these five realities that I'm about to describe to you not only define the Reformation, but even Christianity itself. And that word sola, as I'm talking about the solas, that word sola is a Latin term that means only or alone. And so what these five solas are, are gargantuan, non-negotiable biblical realities of earth-shattering significance. And you have to understand, these five solas, these don't describe a branch or denomination. This is not optional, sort of, you know, a la carte, sort of extra things to, to what you already believe. No, these are Christianity. These define what Christianity is. If you don't stand and affirm and love these, you don't have Christianity. And so here they are, the five radical commitments of the reformers. Number one, this is going to go fast. Number one, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. In other words... What is the foundation and fountain of our faith? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. What is the ultimate reality and and absolute truth upon which we stake our entire destinies? Answer, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. What is it exactly that's living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Radical commitment number two. Number two, sola gratia. Sola gratia, grace alone. In other words, what is it exactly that motivated God in eternity past to single you out and select you for salvation in Jesus Christ? Sola gratia, grace alone. 
To what do we owe the credit for every single aspect of our salvation? Sola gratia, grace alone. What did we ever do that contributed in any positive way to our own salvation? Answer, sola gratia, grace alone. What is, what is the sovereign freedom of God to select some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and inscribe their names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world? There's only one answer to that, sola gratia, grace alone. Radical commitment number three, sola fide, sola fide, faith alone. In other words, What is the broken-hearted confession that I have nothing to contribute to my own salvation? Sola fide, faith alone. What is the means through which the treasure of salvation gets transferred to my bankrupt spiritual bank account free and paid for in full? Sola fide, faith alone. What is it called? What is it called when I sweep all the competitors off the shelf and grab a hold of Christ alone as the one who satisfies the soul, who made the solution for sins by the sacrifice of himself? What is that called? Sola fide, faith alone. Number four, solus Christus. Solus Christus, Christ alone. In other words, who is the one who was man and became fully God for us and for our salvation? Solus Christus, Christ alone. Who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Who is far above all authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Solus Christus, Christ alone. Who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Who is the bread of life and the light of the world and the good shepherd who laid down his life for us, taking the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit? You know the answer, solus Christus, Christ alone. Number five, soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. In other words, what is the very meaning of life itself? Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. Why did God design a universe and a plan in which would be contained sin and evil and sinners who need a Savior? Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. What is it that God has an unwavering commitment to display for our everlasting and ever-increasing enjoyment forever and ever and ever? Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. Why is it that God has a plan designed to save sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? I could not be more sure of anything else in my life. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. And that, those are it. Those are the five radical commitments of the reformers. You might be thinking, that, that's it? Those are, those are radical commitments. I already knew those, and I believe them, and I stand for those. 
To which I reply, I'm sure that you do. But you see, you only stand for them and believe in them because there once was a time when most of the world didn't stand for them and believe them, and yet you stand for them and believe them because people like the reformers bled for them and died for them. That brings me very quickly, part four, two implications. Two implications for you as new reformers, as a new generation of reformers. Number one, you need to know that the Reformation matters. This really matters for you in your lives. Do you know why? Because the Reformation, it's not over. I mean, not even close, not, not by a long shot. You see, it's true, we are no longer in the Dark Ages in some ways. But you see what keeps the lamp of the gospel of grace always burning in the church? What keeps it from being snuffed out by the satanic gospel of human achievement is by remembering what the reformers stood for, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and that all that is contained in the scriptures in which are found everything we need for life and godliness, the scriptures alone. Number two, Never, ever forget that the Reformation continues not merely in the halls of academia or or in seminaries, but it's continued in homes around the dinner table. Men and women, fathers and mothers teaching their children that the only thing that really matters in life, the only thing that really matters in this life is Scripture alone in which is found this glorious salvation plan that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Men and women, but especially men. Build your families on these things. Build your families on these things. Because that is Christianity and that is radical. And if those kinds of things drive you and define you and delight you, you will, like the reformers, live lives to put Jesus Christ on display. And that is a cause worth living and fighting and even worth dying for. Because we are the new reformers. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us feel the weight of truth. So many distractions in our heads, in our lives. So many things competing for our affections. Oh Lord, we are naturally critical, suspicious, naturally cold-hearted, Oh, Lord, we are are, are naturally overly critical and overly analytical, Lord, and I, I pray that you would work, that you would use the truth of your word to recalibrate our affections this morning, that you would work in us. And I pray, I plead with you, Christ, that you would work in our midst through your church. I pray for re, I pray for awakening in this church, for awakening, that people would be awakened to the glory of God of Christ and what he has done. I pray for renewal in this church, that people would be renewed in their passion 
for your glory, O Christ, for what the church is and means and for the great commission, the invincible mission that we have been given. And I pray for transformation, transformation through proclamation, that you would transform our lives through the power and ministry of your word. Oh Lord, we need you. We need you to be a Reformation church that proclaims without shame the most, unsh- the most shareable and unembarrassing message on the planet. Help us to do so always and only for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.